Well, hello. Uh, we're back to the Feathers Pub in Westminster on the week that Boris Johnson became the first Prime Minister in history to be found by a court to have deliberately misled the Sovereign. So it's another quiet and inconsequential edition of On the House, where Sam Jima, MP, and I share a pint and politics with colleagues and friendly rivals. I'm Philip Lee, Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament for Bracknell. And the original idea for this podcast was that we'd have a well-earned drink after a punishing week in the Commons. That's all up in the air since Boris Johnson decided to prorogue Parliament. But the way things are going in the courts, we could all be back on the benches a lot sooner than everyone thought. Prorogation or no prorogation, we'll be coming out every Friday with our inside take on politics. So don't forget to subscribe to On The House on your favourite podcast app. Sam. Well, I'm Sam Jima. I'm the independent MP for East Surrey. It sounds strange saying that. And our guest this week um, has the luxury of observing politics up close without being directly involved. Marie Leconte was born in France, has lived in London since 2009, writes for The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The New Statesman. She's a regular on Newsnight and the Today programme. Now, I understand that when she was at BuzzFeed, she broke stories including Nigel Farage's meeting with Julian Assange. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. And she's also, she also looked into Vote Lee's donations to Brexit campaigner Darren Grimes. She's a firm advocate of the power of gossip in politics. So uh, this week must have felt like uh, Christmas for her. Uh, but before I forget, Marie has just published a new book, Haven't You Heard? Gossip power and how politics really works is out now so marie thank you very much for your time and welcome to on the house oh thanks for having me how do you explain what is going on to people outside of the uk um not easily is the answer so i um so yeah so all my family most of my family is in france and my family's in morocco but so I kind of have weekly phone calls with my mum and dad and my grandparents. Um, and it's got into this quite interesting routine now. So, you know, how are you? How's your health? How's work? How's Brexit? Um, you know, in that order. So each time it's kind of, you know, once I've talked about how my life has been going, I have to talk about the latest Brexit development. So how are you? How's work? How's Brexit? Yeah. That, that's it. That's basically that's it. Your- Brexit is just a part of our life now. Um, and it's actually, I mean, quite sweet of them because they're only obviously like, you know, there was some special programme on telly about Brexit. So we watched it. We didn't care, but, you know, we thought we should know because of you. Uh, but no, it, it has generally become very challenging to explain. You know, proroguing have not got to it yet. Um, I'm looking forward to explaining that one. But, um, but I think it's kind of become a running joke because every week over the past three years, they're like, you know, what, what's been happening? And I say, well, they've gone mad. They've gone completely mad in Parliament is the short version. And then I explain further. But the problem is that each time we're like, well, so you know how last week I said they'd gone mad? They have somehow gone even madder since. Um, so it's kind of been a crescendo <laughs> for three years. So, yeah, no, it's, it's not been easy, is, a, is the answer. Looks like you, it sounds like you need a little Brexit dictionary for your, for, <laughs> to, to refer to all the new terms that come up in the Brexit debate, proroguing, you know, courts, all of this stuff. But um, one, one of the things that um, I wonder hap- is happening is whether we can actually follow what is going on now. I mean, there's so much going on. Every day there's a new surprise. How do you sort of impose a logic in any sense on what is going on when you're discussing this with people? Uh, I'm not really sure. I, 
I suspect that the sane answer to it would be to actually not follow politics that closely, which might sound counterintuitive, but I think, again, so much happens, but the vast majority, I think, of what happens ends up not mattering at all. Um, you know, nothing has changed, has kind of become the catchphrase of our times for a reason. Um, so actually, I think for most normal people, unless it's physically your job, uh, I don't think there's any need to kind of be on Twitter refreshing it, you know, every minute of the day. But the problem is, I think, for us inside Westminster, it is just very addictive. I think there's obviously an extent to which, you know, people follow it because it's their job. I think a lot of it is just people are addicted to the kind of constant drama. And I think we've got nearly a whole new generation now of kind of Westminster watchers and journalists and like the younger MPs who've never known anything else. Like people who've been elected in 2015 and after have never known anything but constant political chaos, effectively. Yes, I mean, constant political chaos is the theme of the moment. I, I have seen some pieces that people have written comparing Brexit to the French Revolution. It, it, does that make sense? And if it does make sense, sort of, can you recognise some of the characters in the revolution in uh, today in Parliament or in the government? Who's Robespierre? This is going to be a very shameful way to answer this, but... Um, I spent most of high school skipping uh, class and getting drunk. So I actually don't know that much about the French Revolution. It's something I generally need to like, learn more about as an adult. But, no, but I, I think the point people try to make when they compare it to the French Revolution, they kind of more accurately um, compare it to the terror. Um, and saying a revolution eats its children. And it's the idea that no one can ever be revolutionary enough. And, you know, with each kind of new step, there are new rules and new people who are clearly, you know, not on the side of the revolution. And in that sense, obviously, you know, you can see that. And I think I suspect it's something that will look quite stark when we look back on Brexit in a few years, just how much the goalposts have moved from, you know, just after the referendum where, you know, the, the inc an incredibly hard Brexit would be leaving the customs union in the single market. I remember that. It was not that long ago. You can look at it in yeah. the stories. Yeah. And now, you know, and now you have things like, what was it? You know, people like Rory Stewart being described as a hard remainer despite backing a deal that would take the UK out of the single market and the customs union. Yeah, I mean, so well, you're, 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 well, you're actually sharing a drink with two extremists, apparently. <laughs> um, I, I've sort of chuckled to myself when people sort of refer to the position I've taken since I resigned as a minister uh, last July, that I'm an extremist. Um, actually, I always viewed my position on wanting another referendum as being a compromise. But you're right, is this sort of normalisation of no deal um, is quite something. I mean, the interesting thing in comparison to a, to a revolution is I don't think the public voted in 2016 for a revolution. I don't think this is what they voted for. Now, there'll be plenty of people who will have lots of ideas as what they voted for when they voted for Leave. But what I... I'm pretty sure in asserting is is that no one really agrees. Uh, there's certainly not a majority of the people in the country agree on what it was that was they were um, sort of wanting to see change. But it certainly wasn't a revolution, and I think people are now increasingly quite unsettled by what's going on. Both Leave voters and Remain voters, and this week it's now involving the courts. It's involving ministers of the Crown implying that judges are maybe not um, always balanced and impartial. And I think this uh, history teaches us that this takes us to a dark place. So uh, I, I'd be interested to see how the public are going to respond when they realise that they've sort of set in, set in, you know, go a revolution, because I don't think that's what they wanted. Um, but actually, on that exact point, I think that's quite interesting, because obviously the papers today did the story. Um, I can't remember who, which paper did it, but, you know, did a story on the judges who kind of voted 
um, and deem you know prorogation in that case to be uh, illegal. The last time that happened, I think it was the Mel who did the big front page enemies of the enemies people. Enemies of the, the people, that's and right. And that was, we spent a week, you know, with people saying this is an outrage, I know how dare newspapers do this, this is completely bonkers. We were both justice ministers at the time. Us. Fun. That must have been a fun time. But, you know, but I feel like now it's happened yeah. again and everyone's a bit, you know, there's been a few, there was a few hours effectively of people being like, mm, you know, that's an in questionable taste and then moved on. So that's something that's apparently normal as well now, even though, again, you know, however many months ago was something that was completely out of the ordinary and completely mad. No, I, I think you're so right about the, firstly, the language pollution. So now a Remainer is anyone who even voted for Theresa May's deal. <laughs> Someone who wants a customs union is a Remainer, although I don't remember the customs union being debated extensively during the actual referendum campaign. So the language pollution, the what was hard Brexit is now soft Brexit. But the, something that's developed in the last couple of months that has really worried me is really the idea of the will of the people. And Boris Johnson claimed that he embodies the will of the people as against parliament so the executive it's saying they're on the side of the will of the people and somehow parliament isn't which is why they talk about this whole idea of parliament versus the people but the people elected parliament as well which is sort of slightly uh, strange and confusing but all of this is sort of what you expect to see in some kind of revolution where you've got these sort of two different things clashing but there is no one indivisible will of the people i doubt all the 17.4 million people who voted leave have one view and only boris johnson can express that view for them and i just want to know what your thoughts are in terms of how that's playing out in parliament at the moment uh, philip do you want to go first well uh, look i mean i i always thought having a referendum on a complex issue with a simple yes no in a representational democracy was a pretty stupid idea and said as much before the result. And I think this is how it's playing out. I mean, I think the absence of emotional intelligence in, in Westminster is stark. I mean, it really is. And the, 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 the misunderstanding of people's motivations for being in politics is also clear. What has surprised me is, is that a few, how few people realised that it was going to be extremely difficult to get everyone to agree on what Brexit was and to get everyone to agree what the, what was in the national interest, as well as all of the sort of internal party intrigue and party um, positioning that is going on, particularly with the Labour Party at the moment. And, I, and I, I, it troubles me, actually, that people didn't spot that this was likely. Now, did I think it was going to end up with the sort of shenanigans in the Scottish courts and everything this week? No, I wasn't saying that a year ago. But I did think this that we would get to an impasse, and I, but I thought the democratic way out of it was another referendum. Um, I still think that, and I still think that's a possibility. It's just a pity that we've had to be, it's had to be so traumatising all of this for politics. And I fear trust in politics, I mean, it was never great, but now it's just getting, you know, it's approaching a critical point. I, you know, if it, we, we could go over the edge here and then you end up with failing democracy, the judges being questioned, the media misbehaves, you know, history starts to repeat itself and it doesn't take us to a good place. Well, we've got, we've, we've got someone from the media. Do you want to comment on that, Marie? Because I, I really want to come on to your book. Uh, yes. But do you want to say anything about this revolution bit and then um, come on to your book? Sort of. I think I've got a deeply nerdy point to make about this. Which Go is for it. We love nerdy Thank points. You. Thank you. But I think, so 
exactly your point about you know the kind of changing rule I guess in society of kind of you know parliament and you know saying the will of the people versus parliament or kind of you know the government versus the MPs etc I think it's part of a wider thing where the kind of role of MPs is being questioned so I think that we saw that a lot with the Labour um, we saw that a lot with the Labour Party over the past few years kind of you know beyond the threats of deselections I think kind of wider discussions internally in the Labour Party of what is the role of an MP so is it you know just getting elected and kind of once that's done doing their own thing are they just meant to basically discuss what they should be doing with their CLP and effectively just, you know, asking the Labour members and their constituency what they should do and then going to Parliament and doing that? Um, so clearly, you know, there's, I think, wider, I think, dissatisfaction with the way MPs function uh, within our democracy at the moment. And I'm not sure where that's going to lead, but I think it keeps popping up as a theme from different bits and different debates. Yeah. Um, and yeah, wherever that leads is, I think, quite worrying. But it strikes me as a, as a wider pattern than just what's going on with Boris at the moment. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, this whole idea of parliament versus the people, I mean, I think it's really parliament versus privilege. When I look at the vanguard of the leave campaign in government they are incredibly privileged people you know and when they say don't talk to rich remainers but go and talk to people sort of up north i don't know the last time jacob Rees-Mogg was in stoke <laughs> um, trying to understand the needs of those people you know but so also fundamentally <laughs> the leave vote was not a working class vote it was an old people vote if you just want to define it as something it's not a class thing it's an age thing um, so I think that this idea as well of just saying, you know, well, actually, it's just the proper, so like mostly Labour Northern Heartlands, uh, working class people who voted Leave, like, that's not fundamentally correct. It was a big part of Leave vote. It was not just that. Actually, the South of England voted quite a lot to Leave as well. Like, you know, lots of other places did. It was an age um, issue much more than a class one. So I think it's not really helpful either to say it's the will of the people because, you know, it's kind of salt of the earth, working class vote. It was a lot more complex than that. So, but you, 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 Marie, you've got a special insight that gossip in politics um, is incredibly useful and that we misunderstand its power. Do, do you just want to tell us a little bit more about your thesis? Not the whole book, but just a little bit about your thesis. Um, yeah, sure. So I guess I sort of got the idea for the book when I... So I kind of had a slightly unconventional route into Westminster because I've never been lobbying. Uh, so I've never been on the political desk of a newspaper in the sense that I had a pass that allowed me to get into Parliament and I would have, um, so like, I think it's twice daily briefings from Number 10, all of that. So I've never been, I guess, an official political journalist, which is slightly worrying when I put it like that. Um, but, you know, so I kind of came in being a political diarist for the Evening Standard, so which meant effectively covering politics via the medium of gossip. So I'd go to events, I'd go to bars, book launches, etc., around Westminster and I'd kind of report on that. Um, but what do you mean by gossip? What, what is political gossip? Is it sort of dirt on people? Just just so for people who are not mm. in Westminster, how should, what, when you talk, what do you mean? So I get, I'm, for the purpose of the book, I think I ended up using quite a wide definition of it. So gossip in that sense would be, so I can't remember exactly. So yeah, gossip in that case, I defined as a conversation between two or more people where at least one person should not have the information at that point in time. Um, so it can be, you know, obviously it can be sort of like quite scandalous, it's quite uh, salacious, but it can be quite dull as well. It can just be about policies about to come out, white papers, etc. So I think it's just about, yeah, conversations that are informal and we're discussing information that's not official and probably should not be known by all the parties. Um, and I guess, you know, the point of the book is kind of saying that 
there's been scientific debate for quite a long time over the idea of dark matter in the universe, uh, basically saying because basically arguing that the way we look at the universe right now, quite a lot of, thing, of things don't make sense. And one of the theories is that there's lots of black matter in the universe, and we've not quite found it yet, but that is kind of, you know, that dark thing we didn't quite understand that's there, that influences everything around the universe and every bit matter. And I think gossip is quite similar in Westminster, in that if you follow it from the outside and you try to understand what goes on, then you know like why things happen. If you don't have access, you don't really know how to spot those personal connections and who likes who, who dislikes who, who's talking to whom, etc. Like who's in which WhatsApp group, you will end up missing a lot of the bigger picture. Like you'll, you'll end up being quite confused by what goes on because it is so important to the way politics functions and that's from MPs to spans to advisors, civil servants, lobbyists, journalists, kind of everyone in their job has to know what really goes on and kind of have, you know, again, like lunches and drinks and kind of things that don't necessarily always make it to the papers. And can you point to sort of any, an event where gossip has actually made the difference politically? Do you discuss that sort of thing in your book at all? Uh, Yes and no. I think the obvious, like the very obvious one is kind of like I think David Cameron and Boris Johnson and the fact that you know if you didn't know yeah. you know let's let just say if you knew nothing about them apart from their political careers uh, you probably never would have understood the way they kind of behaved around one another and how actually you know obviously Boris ended up becoming prime minister and Cameron did before that etc but it is the fact that you know they were like they have known each other for a very, very long time they kind of always had a slightly complicated relationship and they've got quite different personalities as well so the way they interacted with each other was always quite specific so I think that is one of those I guess where personalities and the people you know who hangs out with whom uh, change because yeah you could argue that so you end up I having think, one of them calling the other a girly swat even well, yes, when they're no, in Downing exactly. and I think yeah you could probably argue that we would not be where we are today had Boris not backed Brexit I mean obviously I don't know it's a mug's game to try and guess but you know probably maybe not um, and you know would Boris have backed Brexit had he had like a different relationship with David Cameron had he been a different prime minister he didn't know and so on we don't know but I think you know that is something that that would have been a possibility it's a pretty, well, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty low bar on the sort of national security implications of referring to the former prime minister as a girly swat. I don't quite know how it was justifiably redacted, Sam. But anyway, you know, <laughs> moving on. Well, um, Marie, uh, th- thanks for that. So your book, just so people know, is Gossip Power and How Politics Really Works. And I, I must say that I think you're a terrific interviewer. You got me to admit. Uh, to Ooh, a what, number what, of this? university Ooh. indiscretions <laughs> when you interviewed me um, not too long ago, you know. And, did you um, publish them so, all? And, uh, so, she, she, did you yeah, publish every one with the image? So, um, <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, in you, your, magazine. Yeah, yeah. Your focus on gossip and getting people to reveal all, I think, clearly uh, does work. But big news this week is what happened in the Scottish courts, and I, I think what 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 will be helpful to nail down right at the start is. What it actually did the government do wrong and why did the court find against the government? And, and do, do you want to go for that, Philip? Um, have they published all of the details that they were privy to to come to their judgment? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I, I'd be interested to know whether there was additional information provided to the court because the judgment is pretty strong. I mean, it's not really in doubt and it implies that there is information to suggest that they willfully misled the palace, palace officials and ultimately the sovereign, and that this was all part of the plan. Um, that's quite, quite a judgment. Now, I know that there's going to be an appeal in the Supreme Court next week, and it may, not, it may be the Supreme Court finds in favour of the government. 
but clearly well, the question is whether it finds in yeah. favour of the government in Scots law or English yes. law. You know, I mean, and, but I, um, it strikes me that maybe there's more more of a story to tell here because the judges in Scotland to have done this, because my understanding, speaking to lawyers before this court. Um, hearing was there was not an expectation, particularly strong expectation, that they were going to find it this way. So, what has happened that 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 judgment of, of what they were going to do was incorrect? What, what, what's your what's your take on it? Uh, well, my take on it is that. Um courts are not really my topic of expertise <laughs> so I am staying well out of it because I think that Twitter has far too many people currently who care about politics and know a great deal about politics but then whenever something happens in the courts they say oh and obviously you know this means that and you know yeah, in that absolutely. case the, the bar they have no idea what they're talking about yeah, we, so yes exactly yeah, but I, I thought, know what I'm but talking I, about I'm just going to keep my mouth shut but I thought we were living in the age of not listening to experts I thought that was the <laughs> I thought that was the age of, I mean the one uh, good le- a legal friend of mine said to me last night that is the Queen the monarch not just the Queen herself, but the, the Sovereign moves into this position of being depoliticised, not being seen to get involved in politics. A vacuum is created, and that vacuum, that void, is being filled increasingly by the judiciary. And I think that's an interesting development which Brexit has brought about, and I wonder where that takes Britain to. Yeah. I, think what, what, what I think in very simple terms, we are beginning to see what Dominic Cummings meant when he said they will try and deliver Brexit by the 31st of October by all means necessary. And the, 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 this is kind of what that strategy unfolding in, 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 a number of, in a number of ways. But it's extraordinary for a court, surely, to find that it, the Prime Minister has lied, essentially, is what they're saying. I mean, that is an extraordinary judgment for a court to reach. Yes, and I think it, but it's the implication that there are other people who all conspired for that to take place. That's that for me is why that's the allegation that seems to underpin all of this. And you're right, Marie. I'm I, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't sort of I don't know what this where this goes because that's a legal judgment. But we're into the realms of something which Brexit seems to be laying waste to the way in which we do things in this country in a way that I don't think is is good for the longer term sort of governance and stability of government in Britain. And that's clearly, I think, so one thing I did find really interesting, and honestly, that was not in the past week, so I'm cheating slightly. But it's so the amount of people, and I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a foreigner, so I kind of notice that a bit more, but... Um, the amount of people who I would not normally see as kind of massive royalists and massive, you know, fans of the royal family or the power of the, of the monarch, but suddenly kind of, you know, so I think, yeah, that they seemed genuinely, genuinely disappointed that the Queen had not basically told Boris Johnson to fuck off. Um, which is such a odd thing because again it didn't come you know, from people who kind of yeah, like, adore the idea of the royal yes. family but clearly I think there's a great yearning for quite a lot of people to have some, some sort of higher power some sort of institution that is again like quite depoliticised but also can you know come to the country's aid in t- times of crisis which is not really something I expected so I do agree with you I think there's, there's a gap that needs to be filled there Well the, the question is who are the guardians of our constitution you know our constitution is unwritten but who ultimately is going to say something is out of bounds and not out of bounds i think that is what philip what you are driving at yeah that um it is not clear who the guardians of the constitution are well well at the moment it's sort of it's us it's parliament it's the queen the sovereign 
it's the civil service in some ways. So that will be the cabinet uh, secretary. And it's, and, it's, and it's the rule of law. Because judges interpret law laid down by parliament. And the problem, I suppose, here is constitutional law. It's like all law. It's, it's organic. It's, I think it's happening as we speak. And, um, and I think it's going to continue happening if, if the executive continue to push and push and push. I mean, this, I could see a sort of Supreme Court judgment on October the 29th happening. I can see that scenario if, if this gets pushed down to the line. And, uh, you know, it's good telly. It's good. But, you know, the other interesting thing that somebody said to me last night was that the, the, the other thing this week on the SO24, the but, Dominic... But why, why on the 29th? You've got to be clear exactly oh, why. Well, as in, as what it's would it, what, well, it will be just pushed up against the deadline of what, leaving. What, what is the it? Well the, well, the judgment will be that, say, the Prime Minister chooses to ignore the legislation that was passed last week to write the letter to So this is on extension. So we moved on to a topic. They may go to court and say this isn't there is not we're not obliged to do this and then there will be a judgment but what i was going to go on to say the the so24 motion the humble address motion by dominic greve this week around the prorogation and trying to get access to the communications interestingly this might end up involving the human rights act and that means going to the european court on human rights and there's a certain irony, isn't there, really, that Brexiteers are going to end up trying to defend a situation by taking something to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, I'm going to just watch that space, Sam. <laughs> People are saying that... Um, if the Supreme Court upholds the decision by the Scottish Court, then the Prime Minister will have to resign. Would they have to? But isn't the thing that no one knows that we keep having in, in it's quite entertaining to be completely honest. It's also quite bad, but mostly quite entertaining. But like every other week I swear there's some big question and saying, you know, but what will happen if X? And then everyone kind of sits around and says, I don't know. <laughs> and because it's never happened before, because before, it's not yes. convention, because you know uh, which I mean again, yeah, being, being you know, being from a country where we're just very, very fond of rules and very fond, you know, we've had so many different republics now in France. So I think that your the entire opposite in many ways of kind of you know something new happens just a bunch of people sitting there going oh well we'd not planned for that so uh, uh yeah uh. okay <laughs> in which case you're absolutely right we, we, we don't know but let, let, let's test something else in which is the number of commentators who no matter how th crazy things are for number 10 so right division is actually working well for johnson because there are some undiscovered yeah, voters yes who I really liking this and this is all playing into some grand election strategy and master plan I mean do, do, do you think this is playing into any a, a strategy or is this just Look, I, the wheels coming off the wagon you, you don't have to be the brain of Britain to know that if you could coalesce the leave vote into 323 seats you were going to win the election so they've got about 16 and a half million 17 million leave voters because some have died since 2016 so they've got say 17 million who and, they've, and, they, and they know that over 400 seats voted leave. 
all they've got to do is coalesce, leave votes, and then they win. It's the sort of Scots Nats approach post-2014 and the 2015 election. Um, so it was pretty obvious that's what they were trying to do. They're trying to sort of embrace the Brexit Party position without sort of being toxified by it, is the sort of approach. The difficulty is, is that it doesn't really fit with the reality in Westminster and the Parliament, and also but the public... Why doesn't it fit? I don't know, you were going to say something, um, Marie. Oh, yeah, no, no, I was just going to annoy Nick, I can't remember who mentioned it, but there was a really good point by a journalist who interviewed an MP, a Labour, Northern Labour MP who wasn't named uh, recently, and whose point was, this late, like, Northern Labour MP in a very, very Brexit seat said, thing is, I've got Labour Leave voters in my seat and Labour Remain voters, and the thing is that the Labour Leavers are more Labour than they are Leavers, in the sense that whatever we do, they'll probably end up voting Labour still, and probably, you know, would not vote for the Tories anyway but the Labour Remainers are more Remainers than their Labour, so if we shift, you know, they might go elsewhere. So I do think it's kind of a mistake as well from the Tories to assume that if they go, you know, if they go blue Labour, effectively enough, that's kind of, you know, quite blue Labour. It's more like blue Kip. Well, yeah, blue Kip, blue Labour, um, then they'll get enough Labour leavers. But I'm not sure they can win that bet, because I think lots of those people are, again, more Labour than they are Brexit. I mean, at the moment, I can't see how number 10 gets Brexit by the 31st of October unless it gets a deal through the House. It can't get a deal through the yeah. House by the and 31st. Okay. But it can't, right? I mean, because so, to get a deal through the House by the 31st, you'd have to get a meaningful vote passed. You'd have well, to that's get what the, I sort of mean. the I mean, legislation, the ratification. I mean, but if they get any deal that, that's going to pass, and I don't think a deal can pass, but say this hypothetically, deal passes, it won't be satisfactory to the Brexit party. They will put up candidates in all seats. And if they no deal, if that was possible, and I'm not sure that that's possible anymore, but anything at the moment I'm not being 100% about anything because the process is so... Oh, come on. But I... In which, but if they got no deal through, then they get the Brexit party. But the problem with that is, is that then the other parties will be emboldened by a no deal Brexit. In a, in a sort of perverse sort of way, from a political point of view, you know, if I'm running as a Lib Dem candidate in a seat, not me personally, but someone's running Lib Dem, it's actually better to have a Brexit party candidate in your constituency. That's the obviously electoral math. So it's I, whichever way number 10 turns on this, I don't see a Conservative majority. In fact, I see, so, so I see so the you potential are not for... Seeing the amount of seats they have to win like, again. Yeah. You know, you, you're not seeing this chaos as really sort of providing number 10 with the ammunition they need to rally the leave vote to their cause. You know, Johnson is a martyr. He could be arrested. You know, he, you know, um, yeah. the Remain judges are against him. Maybe. The Remain parliament is against him. The Remain business people are against him. Kind of that, that's that's the kind of the narrative that some commentators are putting out there. It is. No, I was going to say, so, and this is, I don't know, I may be wrong, but I, I found it really interesting to watch. I think that, and it happens with nearly every sort of like new premiership, I think a lot of people in Westminster, so journalists, but not just, really, really want there to be some sort of genuine genius kind of, you know, see-through. <laughs> Very good. But it always happens. It always happens, you know, as we know, obviously, like, Campbell, I guess, he built in the very early days, like, Nick uh, Timothy for quite, like, quite a while before everything came crashing down. And I think there is this thing in Westminster, I think people very clearly want, you know, yearn for someone who's just, again, some sort of, like, Sherlock Holmes before politics, you know, and who, like, you know, who's got this grand plan, then actually, you know, whether you agree or disagree, they're going to cut through everything and everyone. But think of that, that's not, I don't think that's possible. I genuinely do not think that's possible. No matter how clever someone is, it's only one person. And actually, 
there are a number of clever people in Westminster. There's a number of dumb people as well, but you know, there are enough, I think, clever people in Westminster that you cannot have this one genius, who, by the way, also always happens to be a man. Um, but you know, but I think it, it is a narrative thing as well that people just want there to be a sort of like chaotic genius at the heart of it all. I think on, on, on a lighter note, it's been quite interesting how when Nick Timothy was the kind of the Svengali, um, Westminster journalists were obsessed with his beard. And uh, in the case of Dominic Cummings, you know, it's the jumper over the shoulder. You know, I am obsessed with his fashion sense. Like, and I've tweeted about this and I will repeat this because I, I really want a very sharp fashion writer to give us a feature analysing the Dominic Cummings aesthetic. Because I find myself baffled by it. It's not just that I don't like it, I don't understand it. It feels like modern art. You know, when you see a piece of modern art at the Tate and you're just like, I don't, I just don't get this. I don't understand this. That's how you I mean feel about classic Dom. Cummings outfits. Yeah. Classic Dom, right. He's got the jumper over the shoulder. No, but it's just you know, so many layers, none of which go with each other. And I don't know. So yeah, I'd read that. That's all I'm saying. If someone could write it. Well, I mean, I, I think your point about the genius is... Uh, is excellent and um, uh, Philip was talking about that as well because we all we, we could all see um, during the leadership contest where the problems were in the cases that each of the main leadership contestants outlined you know that and somehow the whether it's um, mainly the conservative membership and conservative MPs decided to suspend reality and vote for candidates based on what they said they would do rather than whether it was deliverable or not. And I remember writing a piece at the time saying, everyone has a plan till they're punched in the face. So let's grant that they really want to do what their plan is. But what happens if it doesn't work? And I think what we've seen with the Johnson administration is they had a plan A. The plan A seemed to be working when Parliament was in recess. So during the summer, they could be on transmit. And the moment that plan collided with the reality of a hung Parliament it's completely fallen apart. Which but we said would happen, you know, which everyone knew would happen. And I think that keeps happening in politics at the moment, mostly around Brexit. It's just, and I swear there's kind of like a map now of kind of, you know, politician A says, you know, and then we will do this. And kind of everyone, apart from their, like, the supporters of that, like that politician, say, no, you won't, that's not going to happen. You know, the Irish border being the main example. And then time passes and then entirely unsurprisingly the thing does not work and then we have to move on then oh, but that's fine because we're going to do x instead and everyone oh that's not going to work and again and again now again i think the yeah the irish border problem has been the main the, the main i guess example of that but it keeps happening of yeah exactly like taking people out their word for some reason yeah. which no one normally does yeah. in politics <laughs> no I, I mean no i i think I, the constant criticism i've had to endure over the last 12 to 15 months no is, way is that I'm too rational and logical to be in politics. <laughs> I, and I think it's my medicine. I think, you know, you collect the evidence, you make your decision. Yeah, that's the sort of approach, it's how I've been um, trained. And it's, and, and it goes on, people go on and say, look, it's about emotion. This is all about emotion. And that goes back to my point about absence of emotional intelligence, understanding the emotions and the motivations. It goes back to the colleague I was referring to last week who's deeply distressed because he had to vote a certain way um, because he was under pressure and he was worried about his family and his future and all this sort of stuff and even though he wanted to rebel um, and I think the sort of a lack of an understanding of people's emotional dri drivers in all of this um, is, is being laid bare and I, th I don't know how you 
change that in, in Westminster because it's a bit nature-nurture, people who may be of a certain type are drawn to politics. But I think all the political parties need to perhaps sort of reflect upon how they select candidates. I think the wider country has to ask itself whether it needs to change the way in which members of parliament are... I, how can I put it? The sort of balloon payments. If, if members of parliament are leaving, if they're being, if they feel like they're being compromised and not able to actually vote the way they think is in the national interest, because they're worried about going out and having no job and not being able to fill the table for the family, that isn't democracy in action. That's democracy that's dysfunctioning in a dysfunctional state. But because of the expenses scandal, nobody wants to give money to politicians. And I understand that. I mean, I'm not, you know, I understand where it comes from, but it's now leading to this situation where people feel unable to do what they think is in that is right. And that can't be good for anybody, whether they're leavers or Remainers, Labour or Conservative or Liberal or Green. I mean, it doesn't. But I think that's about to become an even bigger problem as well, because the amount of people who, and I've seen mostly on social media and privately as well, the amount of like very good people who'd make very good MPs for whichever party they want to stand for have now been saying, you know, I don't want to become an MP anymore. Like, you know, I really thought that was my lifelong dream, you know, like to try and stand and actually win a seat. Why would I do it now? And that's, you know, that's where, that's people who are already interested in politics. The people who have had, you know, quote unquote, normal jobs and normal careers and who maybe normally would have kind of decided to get into politics at some point. Like, why would anyone do it now? So I think there might be a decreasing quality as well in terms of like who wants to become MPs over the next few years. Because if you're watching Parliament now, you know, who would watch Parliament as it is currently of any party, any stripe, any Brexit position and say, well, that's what I want. You know, clearly there's MPs are having a tremendous time. <laughs> I, I want in on that, uh, which I think, you know, is a crisis we're going to approach of who, who wants to become an MP. Well, on, on, on that particular note, I think we, uh, before we move on, I think something like 31 Conservative MPs have announced they are stepping down at the next election. Many of them moderate MPs. And um, for precisely the reasons that, um, Marie, you've mentioned, you know, they... Um, whether it's abuse, whether it's stress, whether it's how everything is going, they're deciding that being out of parliament is better than public service. And I think that, that, that is quite sad. But I, I just want us to, in the interest of time, focus on the drama of the week. John Burke stepping down. Now, and uh, which is, um, well, I mean, he did it in characteristic Burke style. And... Um, He's going to step down on Halloween, <laughs> assuming there isn't a general election before, which there wouldn't be um, now. He got applauded by one side of the house and a few members on the other side of the house. How do you think that impacts on Brexit? It's I think when the history is written of Brexit, I think the man who's played, in parliamentary terms, the biggest role in all of this has been John Burko. I mean, I think... Not Jeremy Corbyn? No. Well, I think in terms of the campaign and having a Labour leader who didn't campaign for Remain was significant. But I actually think uh, John Burko... Now, there will be many people who will be up in arms about John Burko's performance as Speaker through uh, this whole Brexit process. And on, on both sides, there will be people who think he's fantastic, other people who think it's, he's got it all wrong. But for sure, he's played a significant role in it. And I suspect, you know, part of this is his own life i mean you know he must be exhausted i mean the pressure the man's been under uh, at certain points has been immense um but also and i think this was his judgment i think he wanted to go in this parliament and um i think everyone can understand why that would be and uh, 
I think the timing was just yet another dramatic moment um, in this whole process. Um, who's, who, who replaces him is a whole different question, man. Uh, to be, I, I've just always wondered about the strength of John Berko's bladder, to be honest. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I, hours. I, I remember during those uh, Brexit debates, he would be sit, he would chair these debates for like five hours at a time. He might he might have a hidden catheter, you see, Sam. And the doctor in me wonders whether he's actually just sitting there and he's, he's able to just go on for hours and hours and hours. I'm like I'm like you. I don't know how he does it. Maybe we should get him on and ask. Th- that's the question I want to ask. Did, did he have exercises? How do you do it? <laughs> Surely as well, you'd think, okay, fine. In that case, you wouldn't drink a lot of liquids. But he talks a lot, so either his mouth is far too dry to be talking at all times, or it's unbearable. But um, but no, I think on on a more serious point on Berko, I think the way this was received was quite symptomatic of the fact of how, like, everything has become black and white and everything needs sights taken, and that's that. Um, In the sense that I think Berko is actually, like, pretty much the definition of a complex character. Like, he has done so much to modernise the house... Um, but at the same time, you know, as was found uh, in several reports, you know, um, basically let bullying and harassment happen in the House of Commons and they could have been his he responsibility did. to stop it. So that, that was said in black and white in several reports. Um, but, yeah, but again, so he's, you know, he's again like someone who has done a number of good things, a number of bad things, but somehow it's all ended up being like, oh, well, actually, you know, whether you like him or not depends on, you know, whether you think that he was trying to stop Brexit or not, and that was that he got flattened entirely. Like this kind of hugely complex character who's had such an influence in the House of Commons is now just, you know, are you pro anti Brexit? Have your opinion, you know, here's one. Um, You're absolutely right. And if, if you see Berko as anti Brexit, then you cannot possibly see any, any good in him. And if you see Berko as pro Brexit, you only see good in him and no darkness. And I think that that is, that, that is a a symptom of the times we live in. But has he intervened to hinder Brexit? I think his argument, I'm guessing, would be that he's facilitated Parliament having a say in the process. The fact that Parliament has, has at times, you know, put obstacles in the way to what the executive has wanted is a separate uh, question. But his argument will be these are this is you know he's had to interpret standing orders there's i'm not a procedural expert i'm not going to claim that i am but he, i guess through all of this you get the strong sense that he's wanted to try to facilitate parliament having as much of a say as possible and in that i think he's been successful well, i think what, what what one one small detail that is missed from all of this is um i remember because i was uh, parliamentary private secretary to David Cameron at the time, when the Brexiteers amended, now Brexiteers, they were Eurosceptics then, um, amended their own government's Queen's speech to have the legislation for an EU referendum added to it. And Berko accepted the amendment. And at the time, Berko was the hero of the Eurosceptics. <laughs> You know, you fast forward a few years on when he accepts other amendments they don't like, he must be a Remainer trying to stop Brexit. I think he just believes in the power of the House, doesn't he? Fundamentally, it's just that. And again, and I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is just that it has become a fight between the executive and, you know, uh, it has become a fight between, you know, the government and Parliament, effectively. And it's just that Berko has had to pick a side by virtue of being who he is and rule it is. It must be unhelpful, though, for members of parliament now to see the speakership as something that is politicised. 
which means that when Berko steps down, it's going to be a straightforward leave-remain fight for the speakership. Surely that can't be healthy for Parliament. Mm. Who are you guys backing? I know I'm not meant to be asking the questions, but I'm curious now. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I'm sort of going to wait and see who the runners and riders are and, um, and make a judgment there. Um, I, I sort of, I will try not to look at it through that prism of leave remain and I'm trying to think of who would be best at, at allowing Parliament to hold the executive to account. I mean, if there's one thing that's You're come not going to go for it yourself. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, it's not. It's not a role that I think I would suit. But I, I do think what's come out of Brexit for me, this whole process, is that we really do need to look at the way in which our, our the relationship between government, parliament, civil service, monarch, all of this, it, it cries out for a, a proper inquiry into it, and then and some recommendations. I mean, I I suspect there will be a public inquiry into the Brexit process. Um, I think, and and hopefully it would include how um, the relationship between the, uh, Parliament and the executive. Good. Well... You've answered the question. Yeah, have I? Who are you backing? Who am I backing? Yeah. I like Chris Bryant. I think he's very enthusiastic about the House. He's um, very focused. I actually think he's quite fair. He might get the renovation of the building done as well, which I think is yeah, something yeah, that's yeah, been... And like many, many yeah. other things has the other, the other about. And Parliament is falling apart, which is... On the nose, but it genuinely you mean is the building, I mean, crumbling. The other so. thing that's slightly more interesting about this is that because of the Brexit, particularly the People's Vote campaign in Parliament, cross party relationships have strengthened like I suspect never before, um, and that may play out in all of this because there are some very close knit teams who have never leaked who may very well all sort of row in behind somebody that they know and trust uh, in a way that may have, I suspect, been very difficult to do so in previous elections. Well, thanks for WhatsApp is all I say. Yeah. Um, just um, to round Which off... Which is heavily uh, mentioned in my book, by the way, if you would like to read it, just putting it out there. Well, I've always said whoever holds the WhatsApp data, it, they know what's going on. Because <laughs> everything in Parliament is done um, on WhatsApp. Just to round off... Um, Tory party internal strife. Philip, I know you don't care anymore. You're a Liberal De Democrat MP, which is why you've got the yellow microphone and I've got the blue microphone. I don't know why, Marie, you've been given the red microphone, by the way. No but, comment. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, kind of, how do we see this playing out? You know, um, William Hague said it was egregious, um, counterproductive, and a self-harming act for Downing Street to get rid of 21 MPs or to withdraw the whip from 21 MPs, to be precise, as it did. Now, there appears to be an olive branch because the chief whip has sent letters to MPs. Now, we compared the letters and we realised that there are three different versions of the letter. No. So, <laughs> depending, on, <laughs> depending on whether or not they really want you back... <gasps> That's amazing. ..you got a different letter. <laughs> Um, Which one are you? I think I'm in the bottom of the category. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but everybody who received the letter found it incredibly patronising to be told receiving the whip is a privilege, not a right. Given that they've all, you know, you've got former chancellors of the Exchequer, you've got people who've been in the party for about 50 years. 
in almost every case they've been working for the Conservative Party for longer than they've been married, for example. That my favourite fact is that Mark Harper, for the entire time he's been alive, Ken Clark has been a Tory MP. Yeah. Um, 1970. Yeah. So that for his entire life, Ken Clark has been on the. And me. Same place to us as well. Yes, so, 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 but, but Mark Harper tried to tell Ken Clark how to behave. Um, so, but, but kind of, where is this going? I mean, well, can Johnson sort of claw it back, as it were? I think a lot of damage has been done. I think the fact that 31 colleagues are standing down, are we honestly saying with the membership of the Conservative Party as it now is? I mean, the membership of my former association has virtually doubled in the last 12 months. Now, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Marie, I don't think we've been seeing One Nation Conservatism in action in the last 12 months. What is it that's been paramount in people's minds? It's been delivering Brexit. So, in effect, my association's complexion, its makeup, has fundamentally changed. And there are people in my former association who, who are thinking of following me. So, in those 31, if that's the same and that's writ large across the country, those 31 Conservatives are going to be replaced by people who aren't One Nation Conservatives. That's the, lo- the logic of it. So, Or who pe- people who pretend yeah. not to be One Nation Conservatives. Yeah. And so the, so the reality is, is that for colleagues who are sort of hanging on in there, and I think Amber's desperately trying to hang on in there, um, what are they going to be... If, if the Conservative Party loses the election, goes into opposition, what are they going to be left with? And, and I, I don't think that... that if, however much I admire the... The determination to try. I've been trying for over 12 months up until recently, so have you, Sam, to try to get people to see sense of where we were going. I think I see it as a very difficult task for the Conservative Party to get back to the party I joined in 1992 anytime soon. Um, I guess the two points I'd like to make on this topic, the first one being that I think, on again, on the MPs who um, lost the whip, I think there may be a slight sort of like, not quite revolution, but kind of anger brewing on that. So I've definitely spoken to a number of Tories who are like, you know, some of which are generally sort of like Brexiteers, Boris supporters and kind of work for the government at the moment, who could not find it in themselves to justify that choice at all. And clearly seemed, you know, even again, like talking to a journalist like me, you know, really struggled to not be obviously angry about it. So I do think that was, that was a stupid move, but also I think, um, and I'm, shamelessly stealing my friend's very clever point here which was that all of that happened far too early so normally what you try and do is that you govern reasonably and you try to be kind and clement and then when that doesn't work you become ruthless and they just came in decided to be ruthless and that's not how it works uh, because then everyone knows that you've got nothing to lose but um, the second point as well is I think that according to conversations again I've had with like, a number of Tories who uh, none of which I think would ever none of whom would ever say that publicly but Quite a lot of them are now quietly saying that actually maybe the Tories should be in opposition for a while now. Whoa. That it's time. And again, you know, which is why that's something no one, I think, who's told me that would ever put their name to it. Um, but, you know, but I think there's a sense that, you know, kind of as you said, Philip, of just maybe needing a time to breathe and kind of, you know, and for that part of the party at least, to kind of, you know, to have the fights, basically, I think the Tories have been dying to have properly, but cannot properly have because they're in government. Um, so, you know, and I, I'm not saying that's people who, you know, voluntarily sabotage an election or whatever, but I think there's a sense of saying, actually, maybe we do need a time out to actually figure out what we, that, what the hell we stand for and what we want going forward. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right about the internal divisions in the Conservative Party. And as, as, as Philip said, they're not going away any time soon. And um, 
people who step down will be replaced by no dealers. There are people in the Conservative Party who feel that anybody who is remotely remained should be purged. And what, what was interesting about the um, withdrawing of the whip is the only MPs I saw willing to defend that policy in public were those desperate for advancement. Yeah. <laughs> you know, anyone who sort of really knew how the parliamentary party works stayed away from it. And I think in one stroke, Johnson lost his, the parliamentary party. You know, he, he... And it was... But I think that when they briefed out the policy, and it's very odd for a government to try to whip its own MPs via the newspapers, it's like a company trying to manage its staff by talking to the trade magazine rather than to the staff directly, was they thought that the numbers would be quite low. Yeah. You know, it would be Grieve and Jima and Beb well, and it, Lee. It's, it's obviously that third batch that you were part of in the letter receiving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we think it's going to be them, yes. so we can, we can wear that, but we actually can, it ends up being three times as many. Three, three times as many. And I also think that it showed, the motivation showed a very dim view, reflected a dim view of MPs, because they felt MPs love their jobs, love the money so much that given the choice between being an MP and keeping the salary and rebelling, that most people will choose the salary over the national interest and it backfired. Um, just as, as, as a, one, one MP, just on a lighthearted note, said to me that um, his wife had said to him if he rebelled, she would withdraw conjugal access and he still went ahead and rebelled. I think that's, that's how far people were willing to go. Um, actually, to finish, I'll just play devil's advocate for a second. I think that part of that thing came from the fact that... I can't remember who came up with the phrase, it might have been Mikey Smith from The Mirror, was that there has been a bit of a tendency for, especially Tory Remainers, to talk big and not do much. I think the phrase was meatloaf Remainers, like they'll do anything to stop Brexit, but they won't do that. Um, so I think, you know, that there had been a bit, I think of nearly a tradition by this point of kind of you know a number of like mps saying oh well you know like we'll do yeah we'll stop this we'll make sure this doesn't happen whatever but at the end of the day would not do anything so i think that basically number 10 kind of came into this quite confidently saying well actually you know it's just them again talking big in the papers but they're not actually going to do anything and then i suspect i don't have any intel on this but i suspect they got caught out and said oh i know they actually did it this time <laughs> well, I mean, I think just to bring this session to a close, that's what's happened in the first two weeks of Parliament, right? Tory Remainers <laughs> would do everything but not do that. It turned out that they were willing to lose their jobs to stop no deal. And then the second thing, Jeremy Corbyn would always go for an election, and he didn't. And those were the two basic assumptions of the Johnson plan for this session of the Parliament, and the, neither of those arm um, worked. And, but it's been, so just to finish, but I think as a Westminster watcher, it has been quite an interesting week. Cause, um, but like, it went so swiftly from going, oh, you know, like, oh, God, you know, Boris may... Um, it, it went very quickly from, you know, God, like, you know, I can't believe Boris is Prime Minister, like, you know, this is terrible, I hope he goes soon somehow, to, in, you know, within a few days going, ha, Boris is just stuck being Prime Minister and there's nothing you can do about it, it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> it's been a weird thing to go through. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, he, I mean, he risks being a do-nothing prime minister. So, it's the weekend. What are you doing? I'm, Books, go, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to Bournemouth. You're going to Bournemouth? Yes. It's Bournemouth? Oh, yeah, it's it's Lib, Lib, Dem Lib Dem Conference. Conference. Oh, Lib Dem Conference. Oh. What about you? I'm actually not going to Lib Dem Conference. Uh, 
which I'm quite sad about because Bournemouth is absolutely lovely. And my first ever party conference uh, was Lib Dems a good few years ago. And I got very, very drunk, as one does at their first conference. And so my first major journalistic memory of going to a conference was talking to Vince Cable on the sort of like second day quite early in the morning, trying very hard not to throw up on him. <laughs> so oh, my I God. I feel quite nostalgic about Bournemouth now. <laughs> you, should, you should go. You should go. Well, um, well I, I have said, you know, given that the letter I received, that I am not going to be accepting the whip back because the policy hasn't changed. So I will be reflecting very deeply on what I do next this weekend. And um, Philip, what about you? Oh, how do doctors outside Bournemouth, doctors who are MPs, how do they unwind? Or should I not be asking that question? <laughs> no, I mean, I um, at the moment I'm just orientating myself in a new party, and it's um, it's you know it's, it's exciting, it's challenging in, in many ways, but it's an exciting thing to be doing. Um, I'm looking forward to Bournemouth next week. Um, and then I suppose it depends on judgments in courts whether we uh, reconvene in Parliament or not, or whether we're not back in Parliament on the 14th of October. Um, I think actually it's probably quite good for everybody to, uh, to just chill out and reflect for a few days um, because we're going to have to make some big decisions. Um, so that's it. We, uh, we will be here next week. The feathers, um, I'm guessing, in in London, and um, for another pint. After, well, what's going to happen next? I mean, who knows at the moment? And uh, so, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. In the meantime, thanks to Marie. Uh, it's a goodbye from me, Philip Lee, and me, Sam Jima. We'll see you next time. On the House was presented by Dr Philip Lee MP and Sam Jima MP. They were joined this week by Marie LeConte, whose book, Haven't You Heard? Gossip, Power and How Politics Really Works is out now. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production.